turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Let's turn back the clock. We're going to go back to Thursday, June 24th of 2021. The scene is the Champlain Towers South, located in Surfside, Florida. Just north of Miami Beach, after a condominium building partially collapsed early Thursday morning. We have a 12-story, 136-unit apartment complex that had sustained a partial collapse. The northeast corridor of the apartment had uh, collapsed, approximately 55 apartment units. The Miami-Dade Fire Rescue says more than 80 units were sent to the scene. They are in search and rescue mode. They are trying to identify survivors. I know they have made contact um, uh, with some, and they are they are doing everything they can to save lives. First responders rescuing a young man from the rubble using a bucket to take people off their balconies. Barry Cohen thought it was a thunderstorm. We opened up the door from our apartment and there was a huge pile of rubble and dust. When we got to the bottom of the stairs, we couldn't open the door because the door was, the steel had bent in the door. The collapse sent a cloud of debris throughout the neighborhood. Cars as far as two blocks away coated with dust. There's a third of the entire building that you cannot see from the street. But it's completely gone in the back towards the beach side. Wow. Can you imagine? Most of us fortunately can't. However, my first guest tonight, sadly, is more than aware of not only the events of that fateful night in June of 2021, but the impact on his family. It is... um, certainly challenging to have your heart broken, your confidence shattered, and your faith tested to the limits, feeling as if your world has collapsed. But in that process, as he argues in a new book, your spirit doesn't have to. Mike Noriega joins us. He's author of a new book soon to be released called Uncollapsible Soul. How do you endure a broken heart without crushing your spirit? Newly released by Genesis Publishing. And uh, Mike, I know that you have a very intimate connection. Connection to the events of June of 2021. I understand your your grandmother 
perished in the collapse and our condolences. Thank you so much for being with us today to share your story. Why talk about this, given uh, how frightful the scene is and, of course, played over and over and over again ad nauseum on television in the days and weeks following this event. Why did you feel it was important to go public with your family's tragedy? Well, thank you so much for having me today. It it really is an honor because uh, I really believe that there is hope through heartbreak. Uh, My grandmother and I had a very close relationship because after I was born, uh, my aunt, um, her daughter, uh, was killed in a car accident about six months later. And all that love and adoration and affection that she had for her daughter, she just poured it into me and up to my 37 years of life at that time when the collapse happened my grandmother told me you saved my life you saved my life and I never really understood what that meant until my grandmother was gone and the reason is because through this whole process one of the things that has so impacted me is that my grandmother she lived her life from a place of an overflow of God's love that affected everyone around her. And so one of my favorite quotes that encapsulates her life is by Mark Batterson from Chase the Lion. He says that an inheritance is what we leave behind for someone, but a legacy is what we leave behind in someone. I wanted other people to be touched by my grandmother's life not because of how she died but because she because of how she lived otherwise this whole tragedy and incident was just in vain but as time went on initially it was just me and my family's pain and dealing with our trauma and about 10 months after the collapse i was added on to a uh, a whatsapp chat with all of the suicide families that lost somebody and uh three of the three of the people on that chat actually were survivors that went down in the collapse and were pulled out of the rubble alive and survived. And from all of that, as I started to get to know these other families, it was, it had such a profound impact on my life because as I listened to their stories, I was reliving the same experience, but through a different perspective. And there was just so much pain and so much Anguish, And so it was so much bigger than me and my family and the loss that we went through. And it just really opened up my, my soul to how in this world that collapses happen all around us. And there's nothing we can do about it. But what we can control is preventing a collapse from within us. Well, that's that's such a valid point that you make, Mike, because whether you're talking about the the horrifying, tragic collapse of an occupied building shattering the night uh, and leaving so much devastation behind or the collapsing of a marriage relationship um, or perhaps a relationship with a son or a daughter that's dealing with substance abuse. I mean, there there are so many examples of the way in which the order of our lives can suddenly collapse. Maybe it's the diagnosis of of cancer that's ir, uh, inoperable. And, and suddenly, everything that you've known, everything that you've trusted 
is just literally completely gone and, and, and torn out from underneath you. And so learning how to deal with the collapses that inevitably happen in life, and yet, as you say in the subtitle of your book, learning to endure a broken heart without crushing your spirit, I think is a very important lesson for all of us. Give me your sense first, um, not to belabor the point in the events of Thursday, June 24th, but when, when did you first learn of this? When did your family first learn of the collapse? So my father worked with the city of Miami Beach Police Department for almost 30 years, and he retired as the chief of police, and uh, he moved on to a, a smaller town called North Bay Village uh, that is in Miami, not too far from Surfside. And so the way we initially found out about it was uh, a family friend, because my grandmother lived in that building for 20 years, a family friend that was in the building that did not collapse because it was a partial collapse. About a third of the building just disintegrated in the middle of the night. But in the tower that didn't collapse, there was this woman that just called my father and woke him up in the middle of the night in a state of hysterics. And all she could say was, the building is gone, the building is gone. And my father just popped out of bed and flew down to Surfside. And uh, I got a phone call not too long after from my mother and she said, hey, uh, your father just got this phone call. Your brother is coming to pick me up and then we're coming to pick you up and we're heading to Surfside. Now this was about 1.30 in the morning. So I'm thinking to myself, what could possibly, what could have happened that we'd be going to Surfside in the middle of the night? And uh, I called the Surfside Police Department there on the spot and they could give me very little information, but I asked them, I said, look, it's the middle of the night. Maybe you can't tell me what happened, but should I be going down there? And they said, yes, absolutely. I would highly advise you get down there. And so my curiosity peaked and when we arrived, nothing could have prepared me for it. Nothing could have prepared anybody for it. Uh, you know, part of the, the grief cycle is denial because it's almost like a defense mechanism that allows you to absorb trauma uh, in, in, a, in a slow process. And it took me about an hour to realize that this wasn't a bad dream that I wasn't going to wake up from, that this was not... Uh, a planned demolition in the middle of the night that my grandmother forgot to tell me about. This wasn't a movie set. That it was real. You knew and the building. The you had visited the building many times. And so when you when you looked at the building or, or the part that remained juxtaposed to the other two sections that had collapsed, you, I would imagine Mike knew instantly that the part that was impacted was one of the units where your grandmother lived? Well, yeah, because the building was, was 12 stories high. And the first half of the building, the first five or six stories, was in the parking garage. And everything you could see, all of the rubble, was the top half of the building. My grandmother lived on the sixth floor, so she was right in the middle of the collapse. Wow. And we could see her balcony, like her mangled balcony with her furniture that we sat in so many times right there. And trying to comprehend that she was somewhere underneath there was just something that was 
so horrific. I'll never forget that my father, for probably a couple hours, just started calling her cell phone over and over and over. Not because he expected her to pick it up, but because if her cell phone survived, perhaps she could have survived. He just wanted to hear a vibration. He just wanted to hear a noise. And so what we were searching for was hope. And we just ended up finding it in a different way. In the days, and they turned, of course, into hours, turned into days, uh, turned into well over a week. Uh, clearly, over that period of time, while there were one or two people that were rescued, uh, there was a diminishing sense of hope that anybody would be able to survive. I mean, just looking at the enormity of, of 12 stories pancaked in the way they were reduced in virtually a pile of rubble. I know there was even hope that maybe some people in the upper floors might have been spared. Um, it's got to shake one's sense of, of not only hope to the very core, but as well as all of the why God questions. And I want to come to that as our conversation continues. Mike Noriega is with us today. Mike has written a new book soon to be released called Uncollapsible Soul, How to Endure a Broken Heart Without Crushing Your Spirit. His grandmother, as we've mentioned, was one of the tragic victims of the Champlain Tower South collapse that happened in Surfside, Florida, back in June of 2021. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion with Mike Noriega as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Mike Noriega is with us tonight. He's author of Uncollapsible Soul. How do you endure a broken heart without crushing your spirit? Soon to be released by Jenna's Publishing. Mike, we appreciate you sharing in such a candid way your family's experience and also what was going on in your own heart and mind. And, of course, when these kinds of events happen, they are so enormous, so overwhelming. They're so out of our sort of emotional, spiritual, intellectual frame of reference. We just can't imagine that this has happened. And, and denial, of course course, is, is a frequent early on coping mechanism and then moving into uh, other feelings, including uh, anger and, and, and a sense of hopelessness. Um, and I'm curious, in your, in your own experience, um, how fast was the shift from hoping that there would be better news to beginning to realize that a miracle was likely not going to happen and then dealing with the struggle of all of the why God, what if kinds of questions? I would say probably within the first couple of days. I mean, she was the, the 12th person found on the sixth day. But I would say after a couple of days, we were really losing hope. Uh, we hoped that she was alive from the get-go, but we knew that the odds were very much so against it. And... Um, the greatest thing that I can tell you is, is my book really addresses two things. It addresses the, the faith side of our hearts and it addresses the healing side of our hearts. Uh, on the faith front, I would say that the, the thing that inspired the book was really Psalm thirty four eighteen. That that verse was everywhere during that time of my life. But um, in January of 2022, I heard someone say it, and it was like the Holy Spirit just spoke it to my heart in a fresh new way that I never understood it. 
It says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those that are crushed in spirit. But why is the Lord near to those that are brokenhearted, but he wants to rescue those that are crushed in spirit? If he wants to rescue you from one, but not necessarily the other, that must mean that those two things are different. And what I learned is that a broken heart is something that we cannot avoid in this life. That even Jesus was not able to escape sorrow. That there's always going to be a grief process that we're going to have to go through. Because that's part of life, that we all go through different losses. But a crushed spirit, oof, that's something entirely different. That's where you lose your faith, your hope, and your purpose. That's like a bird without wings or a well without water where you feel like you just exist without purpose or hope. What I learned 10 years prior, and I'm going to give you guys a plot twist to my book here, but what really encouraged me to write this book and teach me this lesson was that I had actually gone through a divorce 10 years prior that really crushed my spirit because I believed that God was going to save my marriage. And when he didn't, man, it was like, God, I, I, I was faithful in my marriage to get cheated on and then lose my wife. Your way doesn't work. But the key to a crushed spirit is when you have your faith built on the wrong foundation. In other words, when your faith is attached to an outcome rather than to Jesus, that is what leads to a crushed spirit. Because our theology is wrong if it's attached to an outcome. Because we have to look at Jesus because Jesus was perfect. He had full authority of heaven. He was God in the flesh. But he went through betrayal and pain and loss and torture. And there is nothing that we go through that he himself did not go through first. So... It's easy to ask, why, God, why did you allow this? But I think a huge perspective shift that will really alter how we look at the lens of faith or through the lens of faith is how could Jesus be perfect and yet he didn't escape any of these things? And that's why he is near to our broken heart, because he is the God of not sympathy. He is the God of empathy, that he has felt everything that we feel. So when we go to God, that connection happens, intimacy happens when someone understands and feels what we feel, and that is the God that we serve. So that's what led to me writing on the faith side of this book, but then the other side of it is the healing side. And that's so important because there's a lie that's taught in culture that all things heal with time. And that is just not true. Maybe all things get buried with time, but eventually, if you don't face your past, your past will face you. Something that a lot of people don't know is that uh, a byproduct of suffering is passion. Like, for example, the movie The Passion of the Christ, why do they call it that? Well, how do you know if you're passionate about something? Because you're willing to suffer for it. If you're not willing to suffer for it, then by default, you're not passionate about it. Now, passion is neutral, meaning if you go down the road of passion, it'll, there's a fork in the road that you'll eventually hit. And that fork can lead to uh, uh, resentment. So if you become passionate about your anger and your hate and your rage, 
what you're doing is you're becoming passionate about resentment and that will manifest in your life through bitterness. But if you allow that passion to go towards healing, towards restoration, well, the byproduct of that is gonna be the fruits of the spirit and joy in your life. But healing has to be intentional. And that's why through my book, attached to the stories of very specific families that either survived the collapse or in some cases like my grandmother, those that passed away, I attach a step to healing that I actually went through that I learned through each family member's life that I write about. Looking back over not just the events of that night, but then to some degree reliving aspects of this as you poured out your heart in the pages of Uncollapsible Soul, as you conduct these kinds of conversations, um, what's the big takeaway for you personally in all this? For me personally, it's that in God's economy, nothing is ever wasted. That my life verse in all seasons is Romans eight twenty eight. that God works all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that all things that happen are good, but whether it's a bad situation, he's gonna work it for your good, and if it's a good situation, he's gonna work it for your good. The hard part is the in-between, and that's why hope is so essential. So for me, I can't allow, I cannot allow this tragedy to have happened without allowing God's story for his glory to come through so that other people can find healing in the midst of their collapse. And undoubtedly, many people, certainly those families that were impacted, 98 souls lost on that day. There's often men, and we've heard much of this in the news, that they, they really won't find closure until they find an answer as to why. It sounds to me as if there are degrees of which trying to really come to an answer is just going to be mere speculation on the heart of uh, architects and uh, people in the building sciences and so forth. But it sounds to me, Mike, as if you've already found your answer. You've found your answer um, in the comfort that you've received from God's word and in your faith and trusting him, as you quote aptly from uh, from Romans, that, that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Final question for you, as you look back on this experience in your life and as you endeavor to to share your experience to help others um, understand more about how they don't have to allow their entire lives to collapse when events around them seem as if they're going to to crush them, um, what's the main thing that you want readers to take away from your book? It's that what happened to you isn't to define you. Uh, It's more so that it's to refine you. That you are not your pain, that you are not your past, that you're not your mistake, that your identity is not attached to that. And, you know, there's this, you kind of just touched on it right now uh, about, you know, there's going to be speculation behind, you know, why the building collapsed. 
you know, for me, the reason, uh, part of the reason I, I wrote this book is also, you know, there's that verse that says, what is it to gain the world but lose your soul? What is it to prevent another collapse from happening when the collapses within us are consuming us? Mm. In other words, we should build better around us. Absolutely. That, should, that shouldn't have happened. That collapse should never happen again. Nobody should ever have to experience that. But all we truly have control over is the collapses within us. And I believe that God has made our souls to be uncollapsible. But what happened in the collapse is that ultimately it was a weak foundation. They gave out. And it's so symbolic of what happens in our lives when our lives are built on the wrong foundation. Yeah, we're, we're reminded and exhorted in Scripture to build our lives on solid rock and not on shifting yes. sand. Mike, I sure appreciate your, your candor, your insights, sharing not only the pain of your tragedy, but most importantly, the lessons that you've walked away from. Invaluable lessons that I think are apropos for all of us as we deal with the collapse of different parts of our lives all the time. The book, Uncollapsible Soul. How do you endear a broken heart without crushing your spirit? Released by Genesis Publishing. It'll be out in stores within the next week or so. And you can get pre-order information by going online to uncollapsiblesoul.com. That's uncollapsiblesoul.com. Our thanks to author Mike Noriega, who tragically lost his own grandmother in the collapse of Champlain Towers South in Surfside, Florida. And thank you for demonstrating to all of us that with that firm foundation in your own life, Mike, uh, you might be shaken, but your faith certainly has not collapsed. Thank you again to Mike Noriega. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often talk about the issue of of pro-life, and and certainly there's been much to do from a legal standpoint, from a um, Supreme Court standpoint, in the year and a few months since since the Roe and Doe decision was vacated by the high court. And while some would think, okay, that's it, we can uh, pat ourselves on the back and uh, move on to another topic, there's always much work that needs to be done, especially in a state like California, where abortion on demand continues to be the order of the day. Let's get some insights as to the multifaceted approach to ministry of this sort as we're joined by Becky Morales, Program Manager with Real Options. Becky, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us. I understand that uh, you head up the HOPE program. Tell us a bit about what the program is, what it's designed to do. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you about what's going on with Real Options with your listeners. Um, I just want to tell you um, how I got into it, and that is um, I met my husband um, right before I met my husband. Um, not right before, I'm sorry. Long time before I met my husband, I had two abortions. And in 2014, my husband and I attended a Rachel's Vineyard retreat, which is a three-day getaway designed for anyone impacted by pregnancy loss. And that weekend changed my life, and that's how it got me into uh, becoming a volunteer at Rachel's Vineyard retreat. And a few years later, the whole whole program fell in my lap. That's, that's my story. But um, you were asking me what's new on the HOPE program. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Okay, so what's new is we have decided to widen our net from anyone impacted from pregnancy loss to anyone impacted by reproductive loss. 
And what that means is we are including birth moms and fathers who have been placed by their by children from adoption and anyone who is experiencing infertility. Uh, the healing principles are the same for anyone experiencing grief. We offer a safe and compassionate place to explore the complex emotions of loss and provide tools and faith-based strategies as we build a community of hope and connection. Uh, now that California is a sanctuary state for abortions like you were talking about, we are seeing more women and men need help from the trauma of abortion. Getting an abortion, like you're saying, is becoming so much easier than ever. Right now, abortion, as you were saying, is 100% funded with no copay through Medi-Cal or private insurance. And in 2023, this year, all universities, all Cal State universities, have offered the abortion pill right on campus. Uh, UC San Francisco study estimated right now that 1,038 UC and Cal State students are getting an abortion each month. They estimate that at least 13 to 20 women a month, that includes students and young adults across California, are getting access to abortion pills. It is absolutely heartbreaking. And there's even more of a need for both an online support groups, and that is what we're doing right now, and our Rachel's Vineyard retreats. We now are doing online support groups weekly before they were first and third, and then now we added a fifth retreat. We were doing four retreats a year. We also will be starting an in-person support group hosted by Cathedral of Faith, open to anyone impacted by reproductive loss, starting Wednesday, September 6th, from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. I am now a certified grief specialist for Real Options Medical Clinics, which means that I have a greater opportunity to talk to patients who walk in a clinic struggling with reproductive loss of any kind. And I'll just give a few examples of that. Um, I There was a lady that came just a few years ago for a retreat, and she uh, was struggling with infertility. And um, she had no idea. She kind of came kind of not sure what to expect uh, but she realized that the grief of her infertility was very similar to someone who was having a miscarriage or even somebody who was having abortion because in a lot of ways grief is grief also another lady came into our retreat uh, a few months ago and she actually gave her child up for adoption when she was a very young teenager and she had really pushed down that loss, that grief that she wasn't able to raise her child. And now she's a lot older and there are so many things that she realized through her years that she had made decisions because she didn't uh, feel her grief and understand her grief. And it was life changing for her. So those are just a few of our examples of why we have widened our net for reproductive life. It's interesting you look at some of the parallels to other event life uh, life events. Uh, For example, earlier on in the program, we spoke with a gentleman whose grandmother tragically perished in the the collapse of the Champlain Towers in Florida just two years ago. And the whole sense of of, of the bewilderment, the confusion, the grief, the anger, the denial. I mean, there's a multiplicity of 
of emotions that come along with or attend to an experience of loss. And if you try to short-circuit that procedure or that process, uh, it's easy to get stuck. And that often means either stunted growth in relationships, a lack of trust, uh, ongoing seething and anger down below the surface, a whole variety of emotions that one can get stuck on simply because the healthy process of going through loss and coming full circle um, is short-circuited. And I would imagine, Becky, that that must be very prevalent when it comes to those who have been involved in abortions, that uh, the inability to grieve or acknowledge the loss or an attempt to sort of just uh, stuff the emotions down and pretend as if they're meaningless must have a pretty significant impact on many of your clients' mental, emotional, and relational well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see it all the time. It's it's crazy because I thought it was abortion when I first started, but it's actually even miscarriage. It's a very similar grief because... With abortion, you you're you're bewildered and like like me, you you push it down and you feel like you don't have a right to grieve that because you did it yourself. Miscarriage is, is kind of similar, but it's like miscarriage is like, um, well, a lot of people when you lose your baby, somebody will come up and say, oh, just just have another one, you're good. And so they'll just start to try to have another one after that miscarriage. So they themselves never really grieved it. And I have just seen so many stories. People just have an abortion. People just have a miscarriage. Even infertility. It's really hard to be sad. No one wants to be sad. But it literally talks about it is a time to mourn. And it is a God-given gift for people to mourn. And I think that's what these retreats are about. These are the the support groups are are about, is giving tools on how to mourn. And I hear so many people, they always say, Becky, if if, if I go to this retreat, I'm never going to stop crying. Uh, If I go to support and I really talk about what really happened, I will never stop. And I always say this, I say, I remember thinking that way. And it's the strangest thing. Because the moment you can really pinpoint why you did what you did, and it's literally embracing the sadness, then all of a sudden, uh, a weird peace comes. And it happens literally 100% of the time. It's like a joy. All of a sudden, you're able to release it. Those subconscious triggers that you were dealing with now it becomes a conscious trigger and then it de- you don't deal with it as much anymore now i'm not saying when we go you know we're we're completely healed because let me tell you these retreats and these support groups are just like uh, the the a scratch they're they, they they're just the very skin deep and really it's it's really understood because we know that healing is a journey and i know and i tell this to everyone I'm truly not healed until I see Jesus face to face. But we know that this is a right step in our healing process by going to these retreats and finding healing. 
And how ironic that people would be fearful to address this issue in their own life um, out of concern that if they start, they will never be able to stop crying. And yet the sad thing is, as much as they are focused on the the inability there to stop, they're failing to recognize the need to start healing. And if they continue to kick that proverbial can down the road, so to speak, the, the process of starting healing and being able to get past those emotions and, and find a, a sense of, of release of burden uh, will never happen because they are paralyzed by fear. And of course, addressing those issues is a big part of what happens um, in Rachel's Vineyards event. There's another one coming up soon. You can get information on the web at Friends of Real Options.net for more details. Again, that's friendsofrealoptions.net. As Becky mentioned, prevention, intervention, restoration, all key aspects of what Real Options does, and they've done so faithfully for many, many years in many parts of the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, we urge you to um, get behind the good work of this organization. And if you're dealing with these issues, if you're struggling um, in a post-abortive scenario for your own life as a man or a woman, help and hope is indeed available through Real Options. Information on the web at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Becky Morales, Hope Program Manager with Real Options. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's um, turn a corner here and deal with another topic that um, just seems to continue to raise its ugly head, and that is the erosion of parental rights across the nation. And a lot of it seems to be tied into gender dysphoria, gender identity politics, and eventually saying to parents, hey, we got this. We're the government. We're here to help. Let's get the latest as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, it's always great to have you with us. Um, this time, instead of being California, it's New Jersey. But, uh, you know, whether it's the East Coast, the West Coast, it's a blue state. And a state that apparently doesn't do a real job at excelling at respecting parental rights and protecting kids. Tell us what's going on. Oh, yes. Uh, the uh, attorney general there of New Jersey, Matt uh, Plackton, he filed a, uh, a complaint with the Division of Civil Rights against the Hanover Board of Education. The reason he did that is because this, the Hanover Board of Education uh, wants to have a policy that says something really radical, like uh, parents should have a right to know what's going on with their kids at school, especially when it comes to any issue dealing with their mental or emotional well-being, or i.e., uh, if the child is having gender identity confusion or dysphoria, parents should know. Uh, the attorney general says no. Uh, you know, that's not the position of the state. They say He says that school districts uh, cannot be allowed to, to let parents know what's happening to their kids. Uh, they have to create a shadow file that parents don't have access to that's uh, dealing with the children's uh, mental health and emotional health. So we at Pacific Justice Institute, we have decided to file a motion to intervene in this lawsuit on behalf of the Hanover Board of Education and the parents of that school district. 
Wow. And, you know, it's 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 tragic because I suggest, you know, I, I realize that some will argue, well, if a parent finds out parents may not respond real well, we know that every parent is not perfect. But to see the manner in which children are being allowed to make life-altering, life-changing decisions with no parent parental um, guidance or oversight whatsoever, and the notion of not even allowing parents to know about what's going on with issues that involve their own children's mental emotional or spiritual well-being. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't had this discussion because we would have thought it was a chapter out of A Brave New World or uh, Orwell's 1984. And now here instead, we're living it. You're, you're absolutely right. I like those analogies because we're dealing with an element of extreme government control uh, over children. When they do that, they deprive parents of their God-given fundamental rights over the uh, health, education, welfare, and mental and, and the uh, religious upbringing of their children. And that's not my language. That's actually from the United States Supreme Court in two decisions in the 1920s, Myers v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters. So what this attorney general is doing, he's the one that's deviating substantially from established case law with regards to the fundamental rights of parents. And I'm a little confused. All of a sudden, start going through almost systematically and and targeting districts and school boards, uh, even if they create a policy that is attempting to try and protect parental rights and and provide the best for a child. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand, Counselor, and I realize this is largely a rhetorical question, but I'm trying to understand what makes... An adult in that kind of position of power and authority to think that a a a twelve year old a eight year old is capable of drawing these kinds of conclusions. I mean, you know, m- m- most kids at that age are still struggling with what they want to be when they grow up. Let alone to make a life altering decision today that yeah, I think I was born in the wrong body and therefore I'm going to make a change or I'm going to identify differently or I'm going to show up to school and change clothes and and be presenting myself as a girl when my gender is actually a boy. I mean, the the kind of long-term emotional damage that can happen, particularly when you intentionally leave the parents who are charged with the responsibility of caring and protecting their children, when you intentionally block them out of that process, how is that not considered child abuse by the state? You're absolutely right. And especially what happens to the children, it's absolutely child abuse. You know, if these children, studies show, if they're just left alone, those that have uh, truly have this dysphoria, uh, they will actually work it through, and the overwhelming majority of them will no longer have that dysphoria. But the policy of states like New Jersey, New York, California, Oregon, um, it's to actually encourage it. So once a child shows any semblance of possibly identifying as the opposite gender. They want to nurture it. They want to get the opposite sex clothes there at the school for the kids to change into, uh, put them in the opposite uh, locker room, uh, et cetera. And that is only inhibiting their natural probable uh, recovery from this mental condition. Uh, and that's exactly what the uh, psychiatric manual calls it, a, uh, a mental condition. Um, and uh, it needs to be... Uh, not encouraged 
but um, at least at the very least, parents need to be made aware of it. Also, assuming that parents are somehow violent people or dangerous people, that has no precedent whatsoever. Uh, no, parents are the ones the most caring for their kids. We see much more harm coming from the public schools by far. Yeah, well, you know, this is all being generated by the same government that thinks none of us are adult enough to select our own light bulbs. We need the government to tell us that a 8-watt LED is better than a 200-watt incandescent bulb because most adults can't subtract 8 from 200 to come up with a 192-watt difference. It's just, it's it's the brave new world in which we live. Brad Dacus, thank you for staying on top of this and uh, keeping us posted as to what's transpiring on uh, both coasts related to parental rights. Brad Dacus with the Pacific Justice Institute. Information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org.